I actually have mentioned to a couple of people over the last few weeks as I was preparing for today, I've been very distracted by music. This, this passage of scripture not only uh, is very familiar to those of you who uh, are familiar with Handel's Messiah, as a number of passages in Isaiah are uh, incorporated into that piece of music, uh, but there are just a lot of, of good Christian songs that have been just engulfing my mind uh, as I have been preparing. And I hope that that will come across because I, I think that at least in part, that's a response that we all should have to the preaching of God's word. Uh, is that there should be a new song in our heart when we become a believer and as we re- when we consider and reflect upon the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word, that there should be a song in our heart. There should be joy in our heart. There should be thankfulness to the point where we're not singing out of obligation or oh, that's just what we're supposed to do, but that there's really just something swelling up inside of us that we want to. Amen. And that's what God has given us this gift for. And so... Uh, hopefully you won't be distracted too much by the music that will come to your mind, but hopefully it will work in uh, together uh, as a symphony, if you will, uh, incorporating uh, the truth of God's word into our hearts and our minds as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah. You will note on the back of the worship guide again uh, during under the sermon notes, which normally there are some blank lines that you, I had provided a very basic outline. Hopefully that will help you not only follow along this morning, uh, but as you you, uh, like to take notes, will continue to help you uh, through the rest of the week and uh, as you study God's Word. But I would like to start with looking in Matthew chapter 4. So if you'll turn there, that's where we'll begin our study today. And as you're turning there, just to kind of uh, bring the light Most of you are probably familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, This was uh, a great archaeological find uh, that, from a historical perspective, was significant, particularly for those of us who were Christians, uh, as that arid uh, part of the country was able to preserve the very delicate uh, pieces of uh, writing material that the Word of God was copied on for centuries. Uh, and so with, with in that collection of Scripture that was found uh, there, uh, verified much of the Scriptures that we already believed in, many of the skeptics who would say that some of those prophetic works from the Old Testament, oh, well, those were written after Christ came along to sort of piece together and sort of give substance to the story of Christ and the significance of those prophecies. But yet the book of Isaiah was one of those pieces of literature that we found a complete copy of that would date at least 100, if not 200 years earlier than Christ. Not that Isaiah wrote it 200 years earlier than Christ, but this was a copy uh, that was made at least 200 years before Christ. And so it shows the importance of Uh, of what Isaiah was prophesying. What we're studying today uh, was something that those not only in Jesus' day would be living, but those of us who live some 2,000 years after Christ can have confidence in that the scriptures that we teach and the scriptures that we study are verifiable as far as at least being written when they were. We allow the Holy Spirit to take up the rest of that responsibility of teaching us and confirming it and transform our life through it. 
but just from a simple literary perspective, uh, we can have confidence in what we're studying today. But in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to go back so far as to Christ's ministry. In verse 12, we read, Now when he, and the he here is speaking of Christ, when Jesus heard that John, John the baptizer, had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you thanking you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that he shed that has provided a ransom for many. We thank you that we, having placed our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, can call you Father. And that we can ask for help now as, as we study your word, that you will fulfill the promise that the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we might be taught. That the things that Jesus Christ taught would be confirmed that the life that Jesus Christ offers us through this living well of life might transform us even today as we study. Father, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that are found in your law. Open our ears that we may hear. Pray to give us a heart of belief to the point of obedience. May our faith rise to the level of pleasing you, knowing that you not only exist, but that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek after you. So, Father, we seek you today. We, we ask that you would show us Christ. We've already spoken about him in our songs, and we have rejoiced in what he has done through our giving and through our fellowship together. But, Lord, we want to see him in your word. We ask for nothing to be added to it, but, Lord, we simply ask for your word to be revealed to us today so that our lives can be changed and so we can influence and impact this world for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus' ministry began after a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was given. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Earlier uh, in our responsive reading, we read about John the Baptist was a messenger of that light. He wasn't the light, but he was simply a testimony to the light that was about to come. You will recall in John the Baptist's ministry when he was baptizing Jesus, that at that moment the Father opened up heaven and there was a voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there was an indication, a verification that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the servant of God that was going to come and save his people from their sins, to come and extend his, the ministry of the kingdom of God. And as soon as John the baptizer was off the scene, as soon as he had been arrested by Herod, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Galilee, and more particularly this territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, was in the northern part of what was the promised land. You may recall Tim in his previous message, as he often does when he preaches, gives us a great historical context. 
And you may recall just a couple of weeks ago of him explaining uh, the, the, the area of, of what is now Palestine and the judgment that God was bringing upon his people from the Assyrians, that which he was promising because of their disobedience. Well, the first tribes of Israel to experience the wrath of the Assyrians would have been those who were in the north, closest to Assyria. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. And what a glorious, gracious act of God that when Jesus Christ begins his ministry, to whom does this light shine in this world of darkness? To those who first saw the wrath of God. To those who first saw the Assyrians come in and pillage the, the land of Israel, these would be the first ones to hear Jesus Christ himself call out, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Zebulun and Naphtali would be the first words, ones to hear the words of our dear precious Savior as his ministry was beginning. He had just come out of this time of temptation from the, from the wilderness and was called to go into this land to preach. Now, to set the context of what was going on, these things, this prophecy that even those living in Naphtali and Zebulun would understand was because of what Isaiah had written centuries before. So we turn now to Isaiah chapter 8. Chapter 8, at the beginning, there's a continuation of God's warnings of the Assyrian invasion. There's even a couple more references to Emmanuel. A couple of weeks ago, Tim gave us the, the initial one from chapter 7. But yet there was a, re, a repetitious God with us. Not so much in the, oh great, God is with us, but in the judgment, God is with us. And God continues to warn through Isaiah's prophecies of what was going to happen. So that when we come to verse 17, we see Isaiah's response given to us. If you will follow along as I begin reading verse 17 of chapter 8. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are sons and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. What an interesting way to describe God's work of judgment in saying he is hiding his face from them. But yet that is exactly what God will be doing. But in response to that message of Reality, this judgment that was on their doorstep, Isaiah finds hope. He says, in the midst of all of this ungodliness and all of this retribution that God will place upon his people because of their disobedience, he says, I will wait for the Lord. Behold, I will hope in him, and not just me, but of all the children that God has given to me, because they are signs and portents. In other words, God has a remnant that he is redeeming. And even while he is pouring out his wrath in a temporal sort of way through the captivity of his people, the slavery to other nations, there's still a hope. A hope that Isaiah is clinging to. A hope that Isaiah would never see fulfilled in his lifetime but yet a hope that he knew went beyond his lifetime and even beyond our lifetime as is, prophet, as is promised here in this chapter. The children is a reference, there's a reference made to these children also in Isaiah, or 
Hebrews chapter 2 from Isaiah. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Again, this is validation, once again, of what Isaiah was placing his hope in, is what the writer of Hebrews was placing his hope in, and that is what we place our hope in even today. Because Jesus Christ has come. That which started in Zebulun in Naphtali. When Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that same gospel message, the same announcement that God is with us, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is what enables us to partake because he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He took upon flesh so that he could identify with us, so that he could be in all points tempted like we are, yet being without sin. And that is the beginning of our hope. And Isaiah is kind of opening up the shell to see our hope begins when we see the Savior coming in the flesh. And it gets better, right? I mean, we're familiar with this. Hopefully becoming more familiar with it. Now, why would he say such words of hope and, and words of, of patience? Verse 19, he says, And when they say to you, he's speaking about his, the dark world and the dark nation of disobedience that he's living in. Says, now, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? That's a rhetorical question of all rhetorical questions right there, right? When you're living in a land of darkness and sinfulness, and they say, well, let's go over to the fortune teller. Let's go over to the soothsayer. Let's get them to tell us about how everything should be. Wait a minute. Shouldn't the people who have a God, the one true God, shouldn't they be asking him? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? I love this verse in verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. It's almost like a call to arms. That's where we go. We go to the teaching, to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, there's a reason. It's because they have no dawn. There's more sadness in that verse than we can humanly comprehend. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no sunrise. It's because the light has not shone in their life. They, verse 21, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and their faces and turn their faces upward. And, when the, and they will look to the earth. But behold, what are they going to find in the earth? Distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The reason why it was so dark, the reason why they found nothing but anguish was because there was no light of the truth. There was no dawning to their day. Now this beckons us to think about the dark ages. Historians would tell us this would be a period 
in Western Europe between the fall of the Roman Empire and the high Middle Ages, somewhere between the years 500 through 1500 or 1100, during which Germanic tribes swept through Europe and North Africa, often attacking and destroying towns and settlements resulting in demographic, cultural, and economic deterioration. It's a nice description. Unfortunately, they don't understand the true importance of darkness. It's because there was no light, spiritually speaking, during this time. There's no coincidence that the fall of the Roman Empire and the so-called emergence of the Roman Catholic Church would usher in this time of darkness. It would suppress the spiritual understanding of the people because the people couldn't read the Word of God in their own language. They couldn't understand really other than what people who were in the priesthood spoke to them. They were not able to discern whether or not this was the truth or not. So yes, for about 600 years, there was going to be some immense darkness in the land. We just celebrated the 500 year anniversary of Martin Luther pinning 95 theses on the wall of the church of Wittenberg, which many people would state would be the kind of the beginning of the Reformation. The Reformation began before that, but this was really an impactful event. And that Reformation was really what brought Western Europe out of the Dark Ages. It was what gave insight and spiritual understanding to the people through the preaching of God's Word. And it was because it was a dark world. So we ask ourselves even today, because why listen to the conspiracies? Why listen to the chatter, if you will? Why do we listen to the news programs? Why do we listen to all the talk shows? Why do we listen to all the podcasts? Why do we, why do we give our attention to all the things that will give us financial advice, marital advice, Political advice. Whatever type of advice you want, there's all types of chatter out there. And we have to ask ourselves, should not a people inquire of their God? Now that's not to say there aren't newscasts, that's not to say there aren't podcasts, that doesn't mean there aren't chat rooms that are guided by biblical truth. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we live in a world that's trying to get information any sort of way they can so that they can somehow enhance their life in their darkness. All they find is anguish. All they find is gloom and distress. Thick darkness. Reminds us of a woeful reality that there just simply is no dawn. We live in our own darkness, right? One that Jesus addressed. I know a little bit of darkness. I was raised in darkness, not just in a spiritual sense, but the house that I lived in when I was, uh, was growing up, uh, we had uh, a basement. And for some reason, our parents put the three boys down in the basement. Uh, and there were three rooms. My two older brothers, figure this, uh, had the two rooms with windows in them. I had the room in the middle of the basement up against the, the ground. A seven-year-old sleeping at night, pitch black, no light. And now at 49 years old, I wished I could find a room like that again because the sleeping was so much better. <laughs> Why? Because that darkness eliminated the sight of anything. I mean, you could not see any. I mean, 
even with windows on the outside of the back side of the basement, I mean, it would have to be like noonday, and I would wake up, and I would think it would be 8 o'clock in the morning, I'd open up, and the, you know, the, the sun coming through the windows would just blind me. Darkness. But that's what darkness does. It eliminates the sight of it, so you can't see really what's going on. Shared this story as well. I've got a scar right here between my eyes that, uh, that I guess I'll have until the Lord comes back. All as a result of darkness. Because my cat likes to wake you up in the morning at 6 when there's no food in her dish. So I thought I would kind of outsmart the cat and put some food in the dish before I went to bed. That sounds logical, right? And I figured that there were so many nights that I would come in at 3 o'clock in the morning without any lights on, not bothering Amy. Of course, Amy sleeps pretty soundly. I wouldn't have been able to bother with all the lights on. But being able to go straight and be able to get ready for bed, I thought that I could just get up and go into the kitchen, into the, uh, the room, put the cat food in the dish and come walking back in. That night I didn't make it very well. Even though, for some reason, with no lights on, I put my glasses on that were on the nightstand Walked into the kitchen where I guess I needed to see the cat food in the dish, found it. And as I was making my way back through the darkness, I missed our doorway by about that much. And there was a corner, a very sharp corner. It's not quite as sharp as it used to be, uh, but a sharp corner that nailed me right here. And that night I did it. Whether Amy was awake or not, she heard a thud and heard me, Ugh. So my glasses... To help my, to correct my vision didn't help. The experience that I had of somehow managing through there in the past didn't help. What would have helped me that night? Turning on the light would have helped, I hope. If the light didn't help, then I would be in trouble. But spiritually speaking, that's the way we are. We think that if we could just put on the right interpretation of Scripture, that you know that's all we need. In our lostness. Well, if we can just simply kind of go on experience and think, you know, I used to go to church and I remember somehow how I'm supposed to live that maybe I can manage my way into heaven someday by not making too many mistakes or many wrong turns or running into the corner of a wall. But that's not what we need. People who are in darkness need light so that when we read John chapter 3, verse 16... This very familiar passage of Scripture, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you're in the dark, nobody can see your works. You can live for the flesh and you can live for yourself and you can live for the world all you want to. In the darkness, you think nobody can see it. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But... But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's worth a song right there. 
It's not just so much that you've seen the light, but you see the light so much that no longer you see your works of darkness, but now you see that your works have actually been completed through Christ. That's good. That means I don't have to earn it. It also means that God didn't just wipe it out and say, you know what, let's just, let's, let's just overlook it. It means that when I come to God because I see the light, I see that Jesus Christ on the cross has taken all of my sin Amen. and is in exchange giving me all of His perfect life that He lived out so that I can stand right now perfect before God. I'm not perfect. But the Father sees me through Christ. Why? Because He has shown the light and his, that my works have been carried out in God. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody else can get enough advice, advice to do it. But God carries it out. A great light has indeed shown. Back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Have you seen that light today? Have you seen it? Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them... A light show. One of those songs I couldn't get out of my head while I was preparing was, Mine is the sunlight. Mine is the morning. Born of the one light Eden saw play. Praise with elation. Praise every morning. God's recreation of the new day. A great light is shown. Jesus Christ. The Father gave Him so that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So that I could see in the light that came the works being carried out in God. Isaiah's prophecy becomes more specific for God's people Israel. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And then we have three fours. Three because statements of why this joy is so great. The first one in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That's a big thing for an oppressed people to rejoice over. If you think back in Judges chapter 7, you may recall Gideon was called to gather an army. It wasn't a huge army, but it was significant enough where Gideon was like, okay, well, we can maybe put up a pretty good fight with this. And then God said, well, that's not who you're fighting with. We're going to narrow it down. Then it was whittled down just a little bit more. And Gideon said, okay, well, we still have a few people. And God says, nope, it's going to be a lot less than that. So finally, when it was reduced down to 300 men, God decided, okay, now we're going to give you victory over the Midianites. And you can recall that wonderful victory to the point where the people of Israel made an idol out of Gideon. They were so happy about this victory that God had given them through Gideon's leadership. Isaiah says, just like on that day, 
the oppression of your burden will be gone. Rejoice. The second four, verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle of tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. It's kind of a strange statement. But you've seen enough military movies, particularly for those in the ancient days, where you can just sort of hear the, the boots just hitting the ground. And all the leather that's on their legs and all the armor that's on their body, you can just hear it just kind of echoing out through the battlefield. And Isaiah says, all of that equipment that the armies are wearing, all that noise that it makes, they're all going to be gathered up. They're going to burn. The very garments of battle will be consumed in fire. And then, oh boy, this last four. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Here, Isaiah is emphasizing the fact that this promise of God is going to come in flesh. It's not going to be God on high looking over out and saying, you know what, you need to try your hardest. Try to see my greatness and attain it. But a promise in which a child is born and a son is given to us. This gives life to the Christmas story. Because this is the incarnation. This is God in flesh. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is the first of four regal titles. Wonderful Counselor is a term in reference to an honorable rank. In other words, the authority that a king has that implores the respect of its audience. This is not just some guy who sits in the library and studies really hard and, and goes to the chemistry lab and figures out science. This is somebody who, because of his kingliness, is one that people respect his wisdom and his authority. So when we think about this child that is being promised to fulfill this incredible hope, it's going to be a king that has a, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. As we were singing, who can give counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of His words? No one. He's a mighty God. This is a term that, that signifies his, his, his hero-ship, if you will. Kind of like a mighty warrior who comes back from battle victorious and, and he's a hero. He's a mighty God. He's all-powerful. He reminds us of Psalm 24, which we said, lift up your head. O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. You say, Pastor, you're really loud. Well, just be thankful I'm not singing Handel's Messiah right now. <laughs> Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He's a mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. Not in a paternal sense in which we use the word Father. This word is translated from a word, uh, the Father is translated from that which is really speaking of the benefits that you would expect from a, of a benefactor, of 
being protected. It's the task of a king to protect his kingdom. And when we speak of, of the Messiah being the everlasting father, we're not talking about he's a father of children. We're talking about he's the one who protects his people and his kingdom. And then lastly, the Prince of Peace. This is the first of 25 references that Isaiah is going to make through his prophecy about peace. And this Messiah is the Prince of Peace. <laughs> what a birth announcement, right? We lived in Denton in the, in the small paper they still did the birth announcement so that when a baby was born they'd say, hey, so-and-so had baby and this is you know, the parents and all this kind of stuff. Never did I read one time. And this baby is going to become president of the United States. Or this, president, this baby is going to become a huge corporate ladder uh, you know, mogul. And he'll be the one who the, the, the stock market will follow after every decision he makes. Or I've never even heard him say much about, you know, this is, they're going to start on their basketball team and become you know, a three-letter athlete and, and get a scholarship to go to school. That's just not what we do because we don't know. <laughs> and even if we thought we knew, how presumptuous would that be for us to, hey, my baby's born, I just want to know how special he's going to be. Well, guess what? God is not robbing any, robbing any one of their glory when he announced the birth of his son of telling him exactly who he's going to be because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Why? Because his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. It's going to be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. So what's the result of seeing this joy? Not only does it make the preacher sound really loud, but hopefully the result of seeing this light produces joy in your heart. Hopefully, as we're reading through this, as we're thinking about this, hopefully there's something stirring inside of your soul. You don't have to swing from chandeliers. You don't have to shout and run around and act unnatural. But it's natural for you to have a stirring of your soul to say, I have seen the light. The light has shone. Daybreak is broken. The sun is risen. So that we don't just simply think of the resurrected Savior as being risen, but when we think about the Jesus Christ who came and preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Hey, the sun's up. The light has shone. So just like a farmer gets excited around harvest time that all the work, all the labor is not in vain, we're going to reap a harvest. Just like when the war zone is ended and all the weapons are all consumed. When the king comes, it's over. Verse 7, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This is not just simply telling us the source of power that's going to bring this about, but this is bringing about the confidence that it will happen. Amen. This kingdom is coming. This kingdom is real. This kingdom 
that David was given a promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will, shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And praise God that there was a king to be who did bear the iniquity of our sin. But God did not forget and leave his soul in hell. But raised him victorious over the grave so that his kingdom will be forever. Praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Heavenly portals, loud with Hosanna's ring. Jesus, Savior, reigns forever and ever. Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. Christ is coming over the world victorious. Power and glory unto the Lord belong. Praise Him. Praise Him. Tell of His excellent greatness. Praise Him. Praise Him ever. Forever. Forever. In joyful song. From that time of the dawning of the light, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's our response to that? Repent. Repent. Where's your hope? Are you living in a world of darkness? And like Isaiah, I will wait on the Lord. In Him will I hope. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's coming a day. Oh, glorious day. In which our rejoicing will never end. Pastor Charlie, the worship you experienced this morning, that you were enjoying, doesn't hold a candle. Light's coming. Light's already shown. We will all rejoice together forever and ever. And I plead with you, if you can hear my voice this morning, and you're still listening to the muttering of this world, if you're still wandering around in this gloom, anguish, darkness, repent. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Our sin was laid, laid upon His shoulders. He was crucified for us. And when we place our faith upon His work, His perfect work on the cross, we then see our works completed in God. And we can then stand before God justified because of the Prince of Peace.
And if you're here this morning and you've seen the light, pray that you'll rejoice. 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 Let's pray.